As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Today on the show, we spoke with the one and only Seth Godin. We talked about his career path, how he got started in tech to becoming the prolific author and influencer that he is today. And we also talked about achieving greatness and, and the elements that need to come together in order to achieve it and what he describes as the dip. Now, it isn't just about perseverance, though. It's also about circumstance and happenstance in, in many regards. So I know you're going to enjoy this. Stay tuned. We'll get right into our interview with Seth Godin. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. In season four of Rocketship, we are diving into everything product and growth. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We're your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito or opinion and your thoughts around the the 10,000 hour rule. The 10,000 hour rule is really seductive because it reduces to a simple number the secret of success. And there are certainly areas of endeavor where it holds up. The interesting thing for me is to think about the edge cases where it doesn't and why it works sometimes and why it doesn't work others. I've spoken at Juilliard uh, twice at Carnegie Hall uh, to professional musicians who have done more than 10,000 hours worth of work. Mm. Uh, I've also been lucky enough to teach people who have had huge amounts of success in various fields in far less than 10,000 hours of work. So I think we can agree that without an obvious causation, 10,000 hours is not magical. But we do know that purposeful, focused, practice pays off. It pays off on the violin because you have to train your muscles to do something. And it pays off on the violin because you need to learn the work. You need to learn what's available, the the art. Um, but none of that really makes sense 
when you talk about something uh, that doesn't have 400 years of history and that doesn't involve muscles, right? Yeah. So for me, I think the lesson has to do with emotional labor. Emotional labor is what most of us do for a living now. We don't dig a ditch. We don't carry weights around. We work with feelings. And if we're getting paid, it's probably because we're doing something we don't feel like doing on any given day. That it takes emotional labor for an oncologist to look someone in the eye and talk to them about their impending doom. It takes emotional labor for a flight attendant to smile when she doesn't feel like smiling. Mm -hmm. It takes emotional labor to engage with a customer and help her understand that she could achieve more if she just dug in. Yeah. And so part of my quest has been to understand where do we get the reserves to do this emotional labor? If you think about finishing a marathon, the difference between people who quit at mile 20 and people who quit at mile 26 isn't lactic acid. It's figuring out where to put the tired because everyone's tired. But the people who finish figure out how to put the tired somewhere so they can finish. And I think that the training that we go through and the culture that we build around us is what enables us to do this emotional labor. Absolutely. And, and you wrote the, the dip, right? Which the concept being that there is a trough. And when you get through that, um, when you put in that, that work, um, there is, there is success on the other side. And I'd like to talk a bit about getting through that, that trough and how you see people getting either emotional or social support to get through it. Um, do you, were there any examples from your research, um, around that? Well, people like Jim Collins do research. I just make up stories and sometimes, <laughs> sure, sometimes sure. you can find examples in real life. Um, you know, my work works because it makes sense to people. Uh, and in this case, the magic of the dip is that we all have joined a gym in January and quit in February because it's fun to join and fun to quit. But the people who are in shape by summer are the ones who didn't quit. They got through the hard part which is the February, March, and April when nothing much seems to be happening and your body is actually responding. So we can look at musicians, at entrepreneurs, at politicians, at just about any field where it's easy to get into it. Very few people get through the next step. And the next step is the filter. You know, it's really hard to get a literary agent. It's really hard to get a recording contract. It's really hard to win a primary. Uh, but once you get through to the other side, the number of people competing with you is much smaller. Mm. And it's in those moments that you have a chance of really being seen and breaking through. So the question you're asking, which is a brilliant question, is why are some people able to get through the trough and others aren't? Yeah. So I'll pick a Canadian example to begin with, which is why are so many hockey players Canadian? You know, I grew up in yep. Buffalo. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and we had a skating rink right around the corner. And it was twenty-five cents, so there was certainly access to ice, and the cost of ice was small. I played hockey. Lots of kids played hockey, but there isn't one NHL player that I know of from Buffalo. What What's that about? And I think the answer is simple, which is, if you're from Edmonton or you're from Parry Sound, your parents and your friends don't expect you to quit playing hockey when you turn 14. 
In fact, they expect you to go to practice more often, that there is peer pressure to get yourself through that dip. And it's only later when you're in junior leagues or college leagues that it's easier to stop playing because you have other options in your life. But we see so many more Canadian players because there's a cultural imperative that you don't quit just because you broke your arm like I did or broke your nose like I did. You keep doing it because that's what people like us do. And what's practical here is not the lesson that you should grow up in Canada, though it's a good thing to grow up in Canada. What's practical is to realize that you can simulate this on your own. And you can simulate it by seeking out a mastermind group a support group, a circle of fellow travelers, and committing to one another that you're going to set a standard, that we see this happen when people join a CrossFit gym or when they join Alcoholics Anonymous, that in those settings, it's much harder to quit the work. And that is the real benefit of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's nothing magic about 12 steps. Mm. What's magic is peer pressure. What um what systems do we have currently set up to create that that peer pressure um for for you know business leaders? Well, I'm glad you added the last part because we have tons of systems in place to create bad habits. We have uh, fraternities and colleges designed to turn people into alcoholics when they're 20 years old. We have uh, plenty of cultural systems designed to get people to watch three to five hours of TV a day. We have systems in place to encourage people to troll one another online. So those are the negative systems Mm. that are fueled by money. Uh, In business, it's harder because when you join a big club, like the the Lions Club or the Rotary or whatever, the pressure is mostly to fit in, not to stand out. Because that's why those clubs have been around for a long time. They're a good place to hide. You're in the center of the pack. You're not going to get picked off by a lion on the outside like a gazelle. Mm. But then we find little organizations that sometimes become bigger ones that take this mastermind concept from Napoleon Hill and they organize it. And they say, let us find you five or ten people and organize together. Or you see things like, you know, the YPO or the YEO or the TED conference. People who go to TED feel a lot of pressure that if they're going to come back next year, they better have something interesting to say because it's expected that you will have something new to say. So that's part of the challenge that we each have is not to read our comments online or to count our Facebook followers because that's false data that's merely there to freak us out. Instead, It's to seek out people who aren't necessarily more successful than we are, but who care as much as we do. And if we can swap caring with them, I'll care about you if you'll care about me. If we can set up that dynamic with a group that's stable, it can last for years. And those circles keep people going right when they feel like quitting. Who was that for you when, when you were starting? Who who created that system or, or what system did you join that, that allowed you to become the, the prolific author that you are today? Well, I think it's important to put an asterisk here. Uh, I'm not a great example. In fact, no one you talk to is a great example. And the reason is that as soon as there's a great example, we get to think about the other. 
Right. Well, of course, Elon Musk did he what he did because he's the third child out of seven. And because I don't have six brothers and sisters, I can't be him. Right. Or, you know, we, we look for what kind of pencil did Stephen King use when he wrote his book? Because if I just had that pencil, I'd be better. And so I resist this idea of, you know, sort of heroic pornography and who is that? What happened to that person that's different than me? Uh, I will entertain your question by pointing out that uh, I got two really lucky breaks after I turned 18. And before I was 18, I had another lucky break. So the first lucky break was my parents were extraordinary human beings. And they established a standard for me um, that I still try to uphold to this day. Now, you don't get to pick your parents. And I know successful people who didn't have my parents. They're not my brothers and my sisters. And I know people who have had great parents who didn't succeed. So it's helpful, but it's not required so you can forgive yourself. Uh, the other two things that happened were, when I was in college, I got hired uh, to run a fledgling student-run business. And the same day they hired me, without telling me, they hired someone else to do it with me. So the two of us showed up the first day and were surprised to discover the other guy was there. Mm. And Steve was the perfect partner because he called my bluff and pushed very hard for me to do the thing I was good at. And I'll never forget what he contributed. And then when I got to business school a couple years later, a guy named Chip Conley, I was 22, Chip was 23, um, just picked me out of the blue with three other people and put a note in our mailbox at Stanford and said, I'm starting this club on Tuesday nights. We're going to meet in the anthropology department at 730. And every Tuesday for a year, five of us sat in a room and made up business ideas. Over that period of time, I think we probably made up 5,000 businesses. And it was the first time I understood there were other people like me. And it was huge fuel because it made me feel less than crazy. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Now, back to the show. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, when did you start writing? When, when did you, when did you start developing that, um, as a skill and, and as a passion? Well, when I was in high school, my English teacher wrote in my yearbook that I was a failure and I would never amount to anything. And I took her advice and only took one English class in all of college. Uh, so then I started to write out of, uh, I don't know, desperation when I was at Spinnaker Software they had a line of five software products and they canceled them and my career was over. But I asked the boss if I could have one 24 hour period left. He gave it to me. And in that 24 hours, I redesigned all the package, wrote all the copy, uh, wrote all the ads and just did it myself because there was no one else to do it. And that was a good uh, mother of invention. Then when I became a book packager, I was hiring writers, but the writers I was hiring were pretty flaky. And more than once, something didn't come in on time. So I just finished it for them. And along the way, I figured out if I write like I talk, and I talk in complete sentences, it's something I could do. So I don't think it's a gift. Uh, I know that my work at the beginning wasn't particularly great, because I can read it. Uh, but writing is a lot like walking. I have a young friend, Leo, who's learning how to walk. And here's what I can tell you. He falls down all the time. 
And nobody says, oh, poor Leo, he's never going to be able to walk. No one says that because he's going to be able to walk. And the same thing is true for people who want to write. You're going to be able to write. Do you still, um, do you still trip when you're, when you're writing? Have you ever, have you reached a level where you feel completely confident in your ability? Well, my keyboard might be different than yours, but above the return key is a backslash and above, <laughs> and above that is a key that says delete. And I press that key more than any other key on the whole keyboard. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, can you, do you have, um, I'd love to, if you would entertain it, um, I, I'd love to hear a bit more about um, some of the, the discipline, the practice that your, your parents um, gave you, if you, if you would share. Well, I think the, the key part is uh, no penalties for failure, tons of points for trying. And in most households, it's the opposite. Mm. Uh, and that's a huge lesson. And then you combine that with a belief that everyone is welcome. That Thanksgiving in my house, there used to be, you know, 15 people who didn't speak English. That uh, if somebody needs a place, if someone wants a chance, you give it to them because chances are in short supply and we have plenty to hand out. So go ahead and give people a chance. So that combination of trying and opening doors for people uh, has stuck with me for a really long time. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I could tell even just by coming on here, right. It's um, it's a, uh, you almost give us a chance, right. And open up your door to, to us. Well, I mean, Michael, you know, but your re your listeners don't. It's a pain in the ass to make a podcast and do it over <laughs> and over and over again. And it's not really your job. It's your project, just showing up and doing it. And the chances that you're going to be Mark Marin are zero, but you're doing it anyway. Right. And more power to you. And if I can support you by showing up for half an hour, I'm happy to do so. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, do when when we talk about um, the the dip, do you feel like you went through um, that, or what did your journey through that look like as as an author and entrepreneur? Oh boy! Well, you know, I've mentioned this more than once. I was near bankruptcy for more than five years, maybe eight. Like literally having to get in the car to pick up a check from a client because if I waited one day for FedEx, we would miss payroll and the company would go under. Yeah. And um, the dip for entrepreneurs is wide and it is deep. And sometimes it's a dead end. Sometimes you could stick in it forever and never get to the other side. That's the hard part. How do you know? How do you know the difference? That you know, AOL was our biggest customer for a while when I was helping pioneer some of the stuff on the internet. And I invented a really cool idea. And AOL said that once we built it, they would put it on their site. And based on our tests, it was going to generate between three and $5 million in revenue a month. And it was really great. The day we finished the software, AOL switched its business model from $3 an hour to flat fee. No. And they switched their royalties from 15% to zero. That's what the dip feels like, right? Yeah, like yeah. How, how much deeper can you go than that? And we had a piece of software that was brilliant and useless. You, you do that over and over and over again until one day your timing happens to be good. 
And you say, wow, wasn't I lucky? Well, yeah, you were lucky, but you also failed nine times before that because you were unlucky. And it all averages out. Right. Have you, have you felt, um, or, or what did it feel like crossing kind of the, the chasm, if you will? Was there a moment that, that you knew that you were on the other side or temporarily on the other side? Well, so what happened was Yo-Yo Dine was competing with companies in California who had way more money than we did. And we needed to go raise some more money. It was really hard and painful. And I decided when I spoke to uh, a company called Excite that I would just sell them the company. It was easier and I wasn't going to dilute anybody and it was time. And so you feel like, okay, that's it. It worked. And five days into the negotiations, they called us up and they backed out of the deal. Mm. Yet another dip, right? Um, Luck, timing, four weeks later, Yahoo bought us. And I didn't believe it and I didn't believe it and I didn't believe it. And then there was one day in December when someone called on the phone and said, I'm looking at your account. The deal is done. That's when you, you know, that's when you believe it. But, but for me, this has never been about making an income. It's been about making a difference. And so it was long before we actually sold the company that we knew we had done something of substance that we were sending more email every day than any ethical company in the world. More email than IBM, more email than Microsoft with a company with only 70 people in it. And when you have that work, when you can go on a sales call and people have heard of you before you get there, it felt to me like we were starting to be professionals. Mm. And it was frightening because now I could let people down, but it was also thrilling because it meant we could do a different kind of work we didn't have to spend all day explaining ourselves. Yeah, that's, um, that's awesome. Um, so, and that was, that was your mission then. And, and then you've, you've switched, I mean, not switched, but you, you have kind of a a new mission now in, in teaching and, and education and, and inspiration even, um, how did that shift for you and, and why the, the focus on giving back to people through, you know, your writing? Well, that's been the goal all along It's to be a teacher. You know, I grew up, I grew up in Algonquin park uh, and I was a canoeing instructor and those were still some of my best professional moments to this day, being able to help a 10 year old or a 12 year old get into a 16 foot long boat by themselves, sit up straight, and control it and make it do what they wanted it to do. Watching the transformation on a kid's face in that moment uh, was just incredibly heartening. So I can't run a summer camp, but I can try. And the writing, you know, once the company had more than 20, 30 people in it, my job was to help people grow to become the people they could become. Mm -hmm. And so when I lost the company all at once, when I sold it, the question is, what do you do now? And permission marketing had just come out. So going to the next step and teaching through books made perfect sense to me. Uh, It was the publishing industry was ready for the kind of work I wanted to do. And I didn't have to go on sales calls anymore, which was good. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And as, as the web has grown and publishing has faded, I can go direct to the student now. Yeah. And so, you know, my pulpit, is the ability to connect with people who trust me, 
point out things that they maybe need to hear and help teach them. And I can't believe I get to do it for a living, uh, but it gives me great pleasure. You know, this morning I had someone who's doing really important work uh, for people with disabilities in the office for a couple hours and watching how the pieces could fit together. I mean, that was a week's worth of work in an hour and a half. I was delighted because figuring out how to make change happen, it's, it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems like a natural, a natural transition. Did you ever doubt um, your, your ability or, or the, the kind of impact that you would have when you were moving from being a, a CEO um, and running a company into more teaching kind of the world or anyone that would, that would listen? Oh, I have doubts every day. You know, if you stand up and give a speech to a thousand people, I guarantee a hundred of them don't get it mm. and they're wasting their time and yours which means that you succeeded with 90% of the people, but it also means that you weren't good enough for people who trusted you, who showed up. And the same thing's true. You know, my best blog posts are often the ones with the least shares in social media mm. because I'm not optimizing for quick and easy, tell all your friends. I'm optimizing for, can I get under your skin? But the cost of that is that a whole bunch of people aren't going to get it. And that's the magic of teaching. Yeah. Do um, who do you care about more, or or do, or do you focus on that ninety percent, or do you try to bring over that ten? So this would this is when Zig Ziglar changed my life for the third time. Um, Zig was my friend and teacher, and once we worked together on stage in front of twenty three thousand people, it was thrilling. And backstage, I said, Zig, there's always that guy in the third row. He's not paying attention. He's asleep. I couldn't say checking his email because it was before smartphones. <laughs> um, I put all my force of will on him. I put all my energy on him. It's not helping. And Zig turned to me, and I used to be able to do his accent. I can't anymore. <laughs> and he turned to me and he said, you know what? He's not there for you. The other people are there for you. You need to bring your game to them. And it not only changed my work, it changed my life, it changed the way I write, it changed everything about what I do. Because the fact is, it's almost impossible to change someone who is not enrolled in the journey. You can't teach something to someone who doesn't want to learn really hard. On the other hand, if you can find enrollment, and you find someone who's leaning forward, you can make real change happen. So that's what I do. Brilliant. Yeah, that's great. Um, so is there anything that you're working on now that you would like us to, to share? It, well, I wrote, I wrote a book just for this purpose, okay. which is called uh, What to Do When It's Your Turn. And it's at yourturn.link, yourturn.link. And the magic of the book, I illustrated it myself. Uh, it's really fast to read because it's illustrated and filled with provocations. But the purpose of the book is I wrote a book that you could share with other people. So I'll send you a five pack or a 12 pack or 120 pack. And that's what's happening. We're 150,000 copies in the world right now with people saying to the folks around them who they want in their circle, okay. this is the kind of support I need. This is the way I'm looking at the world. Will you join me? Oh, I love that. Amazing. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much. I don't, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but I really appreciate um, you coming on here. An absolute pleasure. Go keep making your ruckus, okay, Mike? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right, cheers. Bye, Seth. Bye. 
If you want to find out more about Rocketship.fm, go to Rocketship.fm. It's pretty simple, right? Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, so you don't miss future episodes in this series. And if you like today's episode, tell a friend. Or two friends, or a lot of friends. We would love it if you would spread the word. We, You could sign up for our newsletter. We have partnered with Product Collective, Mike Belsito's company, to bring you even more content each week. So if you sign up for the newsletter, you're going to get content from Rocketship FM. You're also going to get detailed product content from Product Collective, which is incredibly valuable. And as entrepreneurs, it's one of the most important topics for us to stay up on. So go to rocketship.fm and sign up for our newsletter. If you enjoy this content, leave us a quick review um, or tell a friend or share the link on Twitter. Anything helps to get the word out about the show. We really appreciate it. We'll be right back here in just a couple of days.